Let's pretend it's the end of this whole ugly story. We vanquished the foe and we triumphed in glory. There's nothing but rainbows and blue skies ahead. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. We threw off the yoke and we broke all the shackles. We tore down the walls and we burned down the castle. The oppressors all scattered and naked they fled. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. Welcome to Before the Future Came, temporarily not a Star Trek podcast. We're looking at the ideals of utopian science fiction as we voyage from one work to the next, following a breadcrumb trail of motifs. This month, we're talking about The Collapsium by Will McCarthy, published in 2000. I'm Lucy, and gods of fucking algebra, does it take a declarant to see that? I'm Melissa, and I represent an unbroken chain decades long. And I'm Gregory, a mad prophet, combed over but hardly couth. So excited for this one. (laughs) Oh god. Last episode, we discussed the wild robot, which had information transfer as a crucial component of community and survival. Today, we're talking about the Collapsium, which is also concerned with collaboration and information sharing in order to survive. Melissa picked it, so please give us a summary of the book in your own words. All right, y'all. Fair warning. This is a this is this book is over four hundred pages, and so I did my best with the summary. All right, buckle up. Captain's log, eighth decade of the Kingdom of Soul. Which captain? Good question. Declarant Philander Bruno de Towaji, a scientist with busted internet who works <laughs> with a black hole based material called Collapsium, is living alone with a bunch of robots on a tiny artificial planet in the Kuiper Belt. He's interrupted from his work on finding the end of time by a visit from Her Majesty Tamra Tamatra Latui, the Virgin Queen of all things requesting that he save the queendom from the impending collapse of the ring collapsitor, which is a still in construction ring of these little black holes around the sun that would make communication and data transmission across the solar system far more efficient. Bruno agrees to help because humans are wired for monarchy. She is the queen and he is one of her former lovers. Upon being faxed back to civilization with Tamra, Bruno meets fellow Collapsium engineer scientist Declarant Philander Marlin Sykes, a fellow who harbors not one bit of resentment over Bruno's success uh, as a scientist. Not at all. Not even a little bit. I immediately nope. shipped them. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and it turned out McQueen. great. <laughs> You got you what yep. you wanted. <laughs> all, all the philanders. Uh, the queen drags him to a fundraising dinner party where Bruno makes something of an ass of himself by being awkward, getting drunk, throwing his wealth around, and then getting sick at the table. Uh, I guess that's what happens when you don't talk to humans for over a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, after suffering through dinner, Bruno goes on a 
walk up a long staircase along a mountain on Venus outside, no helmets, uh, no helmets needed, uh, with his fellow dinner companions trailing behind to see the spectacle of what this elusive scientist is going to do next. What he's going to do is solve the engineering problem of the ring collapsitor with Marlon Sykes helpfully at his side while the crowd looks on. He's given an award for his trouble and faxed back to his little internetless planet. Then we find out ghosts exist and that on a return fax, a copy of Bruno was made and was so terrified that he left a residual echo. End of book one. End of book one. Captain's Log, ninth decade of the Queendom of Soul. Bruno is still on his planet and still searching for the end of time, although this time by trying to use his baby black holes to create true vacuum. We do not have to care what that is. Queen Tamra shows up again with yet another disaster on the Ring Collapsitor project. After a lecture on Bruno's troubling little experiment with freeing a robot from its uh, connection with the house that it normally gets its orders from, they have sex and then fax themselves back to civilization because human genetics include a mechanism for awe in the face of celebrity. She is the queen and he is one of her lovers. This time, we meet Laureate Director Delia Van Skettering, a manager of sorts, on an effort to hold the ring collapsitor up out of the sun using a set of cable winches, which we will probably also refer to as grapples in the course of this episode. We also rejoin Marlon Sykes, who is now absolutely high-key hostile and jealous. <laughs> no, mm -hmm. man lacks subtlety. Bruno, Tamara, and Delia visit Marlon's weird, unstable, ostentatious Greek house, drink too sweet tea, and deduce that the problem with the grapples, the cable winches, is due to sabotage. Then all but one of the Delias and Marlins are murdered. A child cop named Commandant Inspector Vivian Rajman and her extremely loyal Lieutenant Cheng Xiao are on the case. The lieutenant shows the group a very cool but very unsettling reenactment of a double murder of Delia and Marlin, which is committed by a robot that was faxed in without leaving a record. As the murder investigation begins to merge with the sabotage investigation, Marlin's weird house is destroyed, Bruno has a heart-to-heart -heart with the weird child cop, and they are finally able to find a suspiciously hiding ship containing a weapon that was used to shoot the ring collapsitor cable winches. Bruno and Xiao have a conversation about what happens in a meritocracy if you don't have merit. Aboard the ship, the suspicious ship, is a heavily modified man that is a copy of someone we met in the first book, Winders Rodenbeck, who opposed the Venus terraforming project. He committed suicide. Heavily modified as in like extra limbs. Like this yes. dude was weird. Extra limbs. Yes, we have not up to this point, seen people that were quite so heavily modified. There's been lots of talk of fashion, but not that sort of thing. Um, he committed suicide, and his other copy, who is more conventional looking and uh, recalls uh, having met everybody, has no idea how this all happened. He is not this kind of terrorist. Bruno leaves the grunt work to the grunts and returns to his little planet to find that his robot, Hugo, can at least walk now. End of book two.
Captain's log. <laughs> Question mark. Who's the captain? Tenth decade of the Queendom of Soul. Bruno is still on his planet, but has darkened his own little son to have materials for his ring-based attempt to find the end of time. He decides he's ready to hang out with humans again and has the house fix his internet connection. It takes nine seconds. It's been decades. <laughs> it's the best joke in the book, I think. It, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> as soon as the connection's reestablished, a very sickly and abused man falls through. It's a copy of Bruno. He's been held by... Dun, dun, dun... Marlon Sykes for years and tortured into revealing how Bruno's mind works in order to best get a leg up on Bruno in this intellectual race that Bruno isn't competing in. Bruno and his fax copy, Muddy, realize that Marlon is destroying dangerous collapsitor ring stuff to destroy the sun when one of those cable winch stations come, comes hurtling out of the system with Delia on it. Bruno and Muddy rapidly devise a way to reduce inertia when traveling quickly in space and build a little Wallace and Gromit-style ship that fly off to say to save Delia and the Queendom. It doesn't have an airlock. It's just got one door. It just has a door. Which becomes a yep. problem. It does. Uh, as one would, I mean, I honestly could not help the Wallace and Gromit image in my head yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of them going to, to get cheese. But along the way, Bruno faces what he considers to be his lowest self, a sniveling, scared, abused version of himself that starts out pretty hopeless and pessimistic. I am leaving out an immensely boring amount of technobabble. There's so <laughs> much boring. I love the technobabble. Techno I love it too, but there is, there's, you can, there's could not be expected to here. summarize it. It, no, we know how no. all of these devices work. I'll, I'll be talking about this. Good. After collecting Delia, the trio careens into the inner solar system in search of the queen. They find the platform where the queen was and are able to recover the two cops and one of the queen's aides, but not the queen herself. She died in an act of rashness, saving nobody. They communicate with Marlin via radio signals, Marlon is extremely ready to show off how smart he is and brag to Bruno about how Bruno has not discovered the end of time. They frantically search for Marlon's secret base, which they find on Mercury, the closest planet facing the sun, readily available for close communication. They find the base, they invade it, they run a gauntlet of a sequence of rooms just like a nice little dungeon until they get themselves to the boss. The boss is not the ginormous spider with hands who is once again, their friend Rodenbeck. It is instead Marlin. It's the curse of being a poet. <laughs> it is. You, you just get to be all the enemies. Apparently. Oh, that poor guy. The mini bosses uh, to be fair. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. The mini bosses. Words are exchanged. Monologuing occurs. She also subdues Marlin and handcuffs him. Bruno successfully re-enables the fax machine in the room in order to get help in and out, and then sits and cries for perhaps 10 weeks over the death of the queen. Bruno is 
by force, completely without his consent, crowned king. The queen is revived, although she is a copy several years old, and they live happily ever after. And we are given to understand that we have been, in fact, reading a history book this whole time. And that is the end of book three. I love this book. I, I thought this, I, I really enjoyed it all the way through. I want to read the sequels. It's a whole series. It is a whole series. I liked it too. Uh, I wasn't sure that I would. The pacing was weird. It definitely felt like three books, three distinct stories. I have more mixed feelings about it. Well, we can get into it. <laughs> uh, we have each brought a topic for discussion. Uh, mine is uh, technology, hard science fiction, and soft science fiction. So the Wikipedia article for The Collapsium opens with, The Collapsium is a hard science fiction novel. Um, and that's a term, like, if you're not a, a big sci-fi reader specifically, um, people talk about there being two kinds of science fiction, hard science fiction and soft science fiction. And like all taxonomies and all binaries, it doesn't work. It's a spectrum and also doesn't mean anything. But generally speaking, people mean one of two things and rarely specify what they mean when they say hard and soft sci-fi. Sometimes they mean hard sci-fi deals with sci-fi about hard sciences, physics and engineering and and uh, chemistry and biology and things like that. And soft sci-fi does soft sciences like sociology and, uh, uh, I don't know, Borges could be considered soft sci-fi, right? Like Psychohistory. <laughs> Yeah, psychohistory, weird linguistic stuff, etc. Or like uh, anthropological stuff like um, the dispossessed or something like that. Um, so in that, in that sense, like foundation would be considered soft sci-fi, even though it doesn't have faster than light travel. Because the, the other mm -hmm. dichotomy that people do is that hard sci-fi, like cares about whether its technology makes sense scientifically or what can be justified scientifically and soft sci-fi doesn't so from that perspective like generally if there's not faster than light travel it's probably hard sci-fi if there's like a magical warp engine that makes lets you go faster than light that's soft sci-fi so star trek and star wars soft sci-fi we're not talking about those because the strike is still ongoing but hard sci-fi would be like <laughs> the series of books called The Expanse, which doesn't have faster than light travel. And this book feels like hard sci-fi, and it's very concerned with hard science physics. But also, while that's kind of the driver for the plot, the story of this book is about a bunch of people and how they interact and, and kind of are, are bounce off of each other. And the... The science that explains it all is, I mean, we learn exactly what chemicals that these these collapsium nodes are made out of. We like there's theories about like exactly how these weird grapples work that allow you to to pull on like sling yourself around the solar system like Spider Man by pulling on planets and stuff. Um, so cool. <laughs> and like 
that's that's all soft sci-fi sort of stuff. That's the ability to travel in an inertialist ship by Spider-Manning your way across the solar system and faxing copies of yourself from place to place. That's all soft sci-fi stuff. Like the transport, you're, the the way the fax machine in the book literally works is it disassembles your body, killing you, transmits the information about you to the other fax machine, which then reassembles you out of base matter. And like, that feels like soft sci-fi technology, even though it's explained in technobabbly things that feel like hard sci-fi. And it's this is a hypertech book with it, with a plot that revolves around interpersonal drama and yet it feels like a hard sci-fi book and it's it's a really interesting like push and pull there and it to me kind of exposes the 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 lie behind that that taxonomy i actually didn't like i wasn't even familiar with those sort of ways of defining hard oh, really? science fiction yeah mm. yeah if you read like uh i don't know a lot of old uh sci-fi short stories um like in magazines and and stuff like that or in anthologies they make a mm-hmm. big deal about one or the other oh yeah i um, sort, of, sort of thought it was a way of being like a sad puppy and being like well this is why it's really important that we only include old white men in things yeah but like <laughs> instead uh, of things like octavia butler ray bradbury <laughs> is a classic example of an old white man who is beloved by good and bad people alike uh, but is a soft sci-fi writer 100%. Like, Ray Bradbury doesn't care how the ghosts of Mars work. Well, yeah, I mean, I understand that you could have white men be soft sci-fi, but mm-hmm. I think it feel it had felt, I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way, I just mm-hmm. sort of thought it was a more, <laughs> like, here's a way to be sort of gatekeeper Yeah, but, I mean, it, it was initially, like, came out in the fan and critical sci-fi press at a, at a time when like they were still reaching for ways to talk about this stuff yeah and i think there have been at least i will say as as a youth who read sci-fi there was a gatekeepy aspect to it there was an aspect of sort of masculinity associated mm-hmm. with hard sci-fi yeah. um especially with like there being more of a chance to have things like romance in soft sci-fi books. I'm saying Mm -hmm. this as if these are a real thing, right? But it's obviously it's not, but there's that association of like, oh, it's closer to being a girl book if it's soft sci-fi. So I definitely struggled with that uh, at a tender age of uh, internalized misogyny, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it also, like, another gatekeepy aspect is, like, there's there's that idea of, like, soft and hard gender stuff. But there's also, like, if you're, it, it's sort of the geek cred thing or the nerd cred thing of, like, well, we were sci-fi fans back when you had to get a book out from the library. And all of these people that are only fans of Star Wars and Star Trek that appear on, you know, in movie theaters and on television. Well, they're, you know, they're Johnny-come-latelys who only like soft sci-fi mm-hmm. and uh and to make matters worse many of them are girls mm-hmm. <laughs> yep yep because girls don't like real science they only like it if it's uh you like hard science <laughs> fiction prove it <laughs> explain to me a theorem of space travel <laughs> and this book is sort of like um 
it, it's doing a little bit of I don't know if deconstruction is the right word. It's riffing on the genre conventions of this sort of sci-fi because this is you know, came out in 2000, but the it very much feels like a Heinlein book in the sense of like there's this reclusive genius who has has fucked the queen and uh, has these rivalries and boy if people keep dragging him to to events when really he just wants to develop his special science and that that sort of thing is examined and pulled apart and uh undermined over the course of the story uh but it's still like it's still this swashbuckling science genius adventure story um and that's i don't know that's a interesting weird this book feels like it's on the cusp of a lot of things like it's not particularly overtly queer in representation like there's minor implications that some of these people might be gay or bi or whatever um but those are like very very subtextual and maybe just our our modern sensibilities reading into things and and that that feels weird to me like like to have this story even especially since it's aping Heinlein where Heinlein books are often Heinlein books have gay and pansexual people all over them um and trans people and so on and this this is very like with all the body modifications and so on that happened no one is like oh yeah they that person was was assigned male at birth there's none of that which is strange but at the same time like its approach to the blending of of techno babble and relationship stuff feels like it's part of the sort of post 2000s uh sci-fi movements towards uh, a more diverse sort of of plots in sci-fi so i don't know that was weird to me the this this has its feet in on both sides of many boundaries speaking of boundaries that it is straddling um i want to talk about wealth and labor a little bit in this book maybe more wealth than labor um and the straddling that i want to talk about is sort of capitalism um so there's this tension kind of throughout the novel with regards to what the value of money is like how much money is a lot of money and what is it best used for and what labor is best used for um so the narrator our our history historian or whoever is telling the story um and and therefore bruno acknowledges the presence of plutocrats there are still obscenely wealthy people there is still a laboring class um it's it's not clear though if this is truly a capitalist society but the touch points are ones the references are ones that we understand courtesy of i think us living in a democracy and specifically a put air quotes around this a democracy uh in a capitalist structure because these are kind of two things that get referred to um so one of the things that comes to mind is that almost immediately we are aware that bruno is revoltingly rich he's i and think he has, it's established he's the richest human being period because yes. he invented collapsium and he right. has he a invented, son like a personal son right yeah the, like like a star yes he is he's yes. built himself a a son 
to orbit yeah. his tiny planet. Yes. Um, his artificial planet, right? Because the planet is the planet is full of the building blocks of Collapsium as well, because those later get used um, in a scene that absolutely makes me cry. Uh, mm. I should have mentioned that scene earlier, but... Yeah, they, they build the Wallace and Gromit spaceship out of all of his out of his home they like disassemble right. every bit of his planet and his fake star which is already burned out and so on and make it into this fancy spaceship right and i guess i'll divert to talk about that one of the interesting things about muddy the fax clone is that he is more I don't know. It, I don't know how to talk about this because I think in some ways Bruno can be considered autistic coded. Um, mm. And so it is, I, I will say Muddy is much more emotive in mm -hmm. the way he relates to people than Bruno is. And so when Muddy realizes that the house is going to be destroyed. The house is uh, what you know, we would call it a smart house, right? Like it talks, it has personality, it uh, manages things and changes materials and does all sorts of things. It's practically a person. Um, and when Muddy realizes that the house is going to be destroyed in this final process as this planetoid is destroyed, uh, he just has an absolute come apart, as Lucy would say, just has a complete sobbing like how can we shouldn't we say goodbye shouldn't we you know uh do that and oh that scene got me anyway they they save the house they save the the ai they yes. put it on a disc and it ends up being the a ship saving later. the day yeah it really comes yep. in saving clutch the at the end right yeah it does because uh it is used to help control the fax machines in the uh the base on on mercury i hope we start a tradition of one of us tearing up in each episode <laughs> we'll last see. time it was lucy now it's me so um when we see that that bruno was this rich like right off the gate and what he's talking about are the the difficulties of being a rich scientist engineer out in the back beyond which is that he it has a limited supply of this very expensive material, these collapsons, this, these nubles. Um, and because he has this limited material, he has to be really, really careful about how he uses it so he doesn't waste it. Because it is, you know, he can afford to engage in this, this, this non, <laughs> this, this labor that does not produce capital in a in a in a distinct way it's just sort of like exploratory but, research right he doesn't have internet to send back his search result like what mm -hmm. he's coming up with he's just living alone doing this stuff which is cool but it you know he has enough material to eat forever um you know he's he's set himself up in a particular way where he can spend his time doing this and does not need uh, does not seem to need the structures of the rest of society to get by. But when it comes to like the logistics of bringing in more of this material, that's that's difficult. This is where he's like, oh, gosh, here, here we've run into the difficulties of being wealthy. I could, but wow, I balk at the sticker price. Um, and it's just this weird tension of like, 
you know, he's, we see later when he goes to this dinner party where he gets himself sick, getting drunk, um, that like, this is a place where people just buy planets. Someone owns Venus Mm. and they want to terraform it, but they don't have the money out of their pockets to do it. So they're holding a fundraising dinner for it. And there's this sort of awe shucks. There's a certain, there's a certain liberalism to that fundraiser dinner of these sort of elites sitting around all of them moneyed like even that artist you don't get the sense that this is a starving artist right yeah uh, the, the, the dude's like the most famous scene. playwright in the solar system right um he also has the most hands of any playwright in the solar system he, he does <laughs> by the, the end hands. yes <laughs> He just keeps adding limbs every time Marlon introduces a new version of this dude. Actually, it's six hands both times. Is it six right? hands both times? He's, oh, talk- he's he has... called a spider the in the, the final in the dungeon crawl, I thought he only had the extra set if... in the first, but I'm not okay. sure either. Oh, you're right. It might only be the extra set. The, the spider, they say spider, but he only has six. Okay. So it seemed like spider body configuration, but only six arms. Um it's it's a lot of arms so in terms of this sort of this political system you've got these plutocrats that are owning i mean there are only x number of bodies in the solar system you can own right only so many planets or moons or whatever Mm -hmm. size thing you're looking at and they're being bought up they're being controlled they're willing to they have already terraformed venus to the point where you don't need to wear protective equipment to go outside in many of the areas at least some of the areas where there are like in high altitudes where it's not too hot exactly um and they talk about bringing venus to life they also talk about bringing planets to heal the sense of wealth like even in this discussion in which we have this we have uh rodenbeck saying like we should leave these things alone we should leave something alone we don't have to change everything and then we have these rich people arguing about, you know, how do we best do this? Can you just give us the money? Um, there isn't a sense that, like, anyone else gets a say in this. And in fact, um, when the owners of Venus says, like, tells Rodenbeck, like, when you buy a planet, you can do what you want with it. No one will say anything. Mm-hmm. Um but there are going to be people living on that planet, ultimately. At least that's the implication, is that they're not just terraforming it to turn it into, I don't know, a ski resort for themselves. They're going to want things on that planet. Um, so anyway, my point is that this book is as confused as Bruno is, I think, <laughs> about wealth. It is living in Bruno's head about this. And Bruno has this real aw shucks thing about it. He's He gets drunk. He offers... You know, he's embarrassed himself and he's like, he offers to give $100 trillion to the terraforming of Venus, which he gave no shits about before he got there. Gives no shits about as he's offering up this money. It's just a number he comes up with that he can afford with no pain. You you say aw shucks, but I think that that scene in particular makes it clear that it's not, it's not that he... Uh, is self-effacing about about his wealth and like trying to play it off i think his wealth is a deep source of shame for him um 
because yes like, I, you're right yep he he bids too like he he makes too high of a donation and when he when everyone in the room stays quiet that's when he completely breaks down and that might be when he's sick on the table and like <laughs> he's like oh no i'm too rich and like i don't know how to like i just want to be a, a an engineer i don't want to be a rich person and like i mean that doesn't excuse him right because he could immediately stop being rich like there are ways to do this but also there's there's this weird like this is a world in which uh old aging has been cured you cannot die mm-hmm. of old age anymore um your every disease has been cured because you can just go through a fax machine and have yourself cleansed um you in fact you can send your thoughts through the fax machine to not be drunk anymore if you want to right. or you can have the fax machine produce a drug that will counteract your alcohol um there's the implication that presumably everyone has as much food as they want you can build structures incredibly cheaply and so like this probably is a world without poverty but also is a world where people can be so wealthy they can own planets and i don't know how that all works you know some of that discussion about democracy and wealth and monarchy made me curious because i wasn't sure all of a sudden if will mccarthy was american or british because some of that stuff sounds very british he's american uh i did uncover i just want to share one thing though apparently he won the prometheus award which is a big sci-fi award in 2022 for a book called rich man's sky so i do suspect (laughs) that there is like some of these things must be percolating with um mccarthy um i assume um in his writing he's also by the way a ha- actual rocket scientist formerly worked for lockheed martin and he's released a non-fiction book basically detailing the theoretical basis behind these te- like a like a this is the way science could go kind of explaining all of this uh and is big into programmable matter and stuff like that while he was uh, an editor for Wired in 2001, um, he wrote a story on programmable matter, objects that could be altered via an external input of some kind. And then he, that the book he wrote was called Hacking Matter in 2003. And then apparently, I'm reading this very quickly, he worked with the person who made blackberries to create raven brick which has something to do with solar power oh cool if i could charge my phone in the sun there there's also a thread that runs through this book concerning capital and wealth that is especially apparent with the cops vivian and chang uh where vivian is this highly experienced detective and chang is like the second best cop in the solar system and chang is like i'm always going to be her number two because she's never going to die and that's fine i've i've come to terms with that and i know that the second book in the series is about the kids of uh bruno and the queen uh the the son of them and him being dissatisfied with the fact that he will never get to become anything other than what he is uh because you know he's not going to be able to replace anyone and that feels to me like it's talking about ancestral wealth like the idea that like well they've got 
they've got their position and so they've got literal uh monetary capital but also social capital that's unassailable because like if you work and work and work to get better and better at your job as long as they're continuing to get better and better too you will never get a promotion because they're getting better at the same rate that you are and they just started sooner and that's i the book i think think that thinks that's bad but i'm not sure that the book has a vision of what it should be instead i agree because i mean this is this book is also heavily examining ambition mm, right mm-hmm. and so what what is ambition we have two we have two examples of that shown very you know forefront obviously is bruno and marlin and marlin wants to win mm-hmm and be smartest that's his ambition whereas bruno ostensibly wants to find out cool shit he the discovery is purportedly mm-hmm. the the ambition um neither of these people seem to need to work to feed themselves um mm-hmm. this book is listed as sort of a utopian fiction book in part because i think it's assumed that humanity you know everyone's got fax machines right and the fax machines don't cost anything or material for them doesn't cost anything the things at that level are not discussed um but once you i feel like if you don't address what ambition is good then the question of do you care about promotion gets harder to unravel this also seems like something that might just be percolating in will mccarthy's head at this point right of like (laughs) what can you do in a society that has plutocracy uh with things like ambition yeah i think the only worker we see the only person who's not a member of the ownership class assuming that uh the queen's handmaidens are kind of minor nobles is delia she seems to be the only (laughs) the only named character who ever does any work delia and i mean the robots i guess but and and, like everyone else is either a cop or a rich person yeah delia's i mean delia's a came up from being a laborer so she's yeah she's a boss but unclear where her political sympathies lie i mean i think it's pretty unclear how the society is structured at all right Mm -hmm. like i don't i don't Mm -hmm. have a sense of is there an underclass is there a proletariat like i don't know like i don't think i could answer that question i don't think i think there are some things that give me clues that there is some sort of class so for instance um these paid members will not align with yours but yeah, Lucy has the the original hardcover, and we've got the Bane trade paperbacks. Yeah, on page one thirty three, um, they are talking about the. I think they're talking about the the whole cable winch grapple system. Early and, chapter eight. Yeah, and Bruno says that he or Bruno can't help but be impressed. A project like this one, however ill-fated, bespoke a queendom far bolder, far wealthier, and more ambitious than the one he'd left decades ago. 
with death a hunted quality faxed away with every minor journey perhaps civilization was finally able to take a longer view was it easier to make such pipe dreams come true when the benefits were for the builders themselves rather than some hypothetical posterity the the builders themselves part to me implies that there is some sort of working class and then later when in sort of the democracy sections um the biggest one is right at the beginning of chapter 10 which in my book is page 153 they're talking about like well i just want one i mean i haven't found the section yet that you were just reading in chapter eight but i i don't i don't inherently read builders as being a class i mean we're talking about engineers so i do think mm -hmm. they see themselves as builders in in a way oh i mean bruno I is a might builder. be talking about the architects yeah i mean bruno's literally a builder right like he 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 makes all these yes. things and it's muddy who builds the 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 wallace and gromit ship in the end so and and even muddy isn't directly building it like muddy is using robots and computers and and right tools that are very very far removed from being direct control right but they were not using like peasants right, right. yeah it, like yeah. there's no sign of service workers there's no sign of 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 craftspeople it's all right. bosses and robots yep that's a good point yeah and okay so i'm thinking about this democracy stuff right where they're talking about um the value of individual action uh this is page 153 right at the beginning of chapter 10 uh, in the first paragraph society it was thought should work to maximize the power and with it the accountability of each of its members so that success and failure and happiness and misery might be had in direct proportion to the effort invested turns out this was a load of hooey all along people hated that sort of self-responsibility always had etc etc and i when it and that's why they elect talks about, a queen yes it's why they elect a queen um in addition to apparently the genetic inclination we have towards celebrities and monarchs when when this book talks about people quote unquote this way i kind of have to think they're ha i mean it can't be all playwrights sitting at fundraiser tables right there have yeah, to I be mean, normal ass maybe, people. Maybe anyone who's not rich is just living a life of constant leisure. I I mean, it does actually maybe. literally go on to say only when it was inescapably universal, when there were no more corrupt or uncivilized third worlds, that's in quotation marks, to flee to, mm -hmm. did it become clear that what people really wanted in their secret heart of hearts was a charismatic mon monarch, which right. seems to imply something. Yeah, that that everyone's at least fed and can take off work if they want to. But Americans, for instance, don't consider the unhoused population in America to be third world. You know what I mean? Like the if this is a book by an American author written for an American audience, let's say, third world means doesn't yeah, mean just poverty I, but but the the implication there is clearly that like once there weren't big problems anymore mm -hmm. that that's when people became dissatisfied and 
decided they wanted monarchy back. Yeah. And like I buy it. Yeah. I I, I the the feeling of this book is not that like there's a secret like ghetto where all the poor people live and scrabble for food while all these rich people are jetting around. No. That's not the implication. No. I mean, it I just think doesn't... Bruno doesn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. The and the book doesn't really give a shit about what no. normal people are doing. And yeah, so I started being fascinated by the fact that to me it is unclear what the economic system of this universe is. And then that that had me thinking about other things. So anyway, thank you for this this investigation. I want to read other books in the series almost <laughs> just to find out what the fuck who who else is in this society. <laughs> I'll probably read Rich Man Sky just because I'm curious to know where mm. he is in twenty twenty two. Yeah. I feel like a case of appendicitis might be coming on. I'm going to put myself in the fax machine really quick (laughs) just to fix it. Um, I (laughs) want to talk about the appendices to this book and how you were meant to read this book. I am fascinated (laughs) by this (laughs) sort of, um, I guess, text structure that McCarthy has chosen for this. So um, my my sort of inquiry question is, how are the appendices used in this book? And I guess I will first just share that there are four appendices. The first appendix, Appendix A, subtitle, in which an appendix is provided, is basically a bunch of definitions. Um, I'm going to say more. I'm going to say more in just a few minutes. Uh, um, They're like a couple pages long and they kind of get into the science of some of these terms that we've been bandying about. Appendix B is a glossary. Appendix C is technical notes. And Appendix D is titled Marlin. Um, Only Appendix A is actually cued in the book. So you see in footnotes that you can go and refer to Appendix A. Appendix B, C, and D are just appended and never referred to in the text of the book. Um, That is um, interesting, an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I think about how are these appendices used, Um, It definitely provides us some additional science, I'll say fun science facts, and then my (laughs) initial reading of the appendices, actually Appendix A, I thought, you know, here's some additional context for people who aren't rocket scientists who used to work for Lockheed Martin, I guess, who can, you know, to help (laughs) us think it through. But yeah. then Appendix you know, A is where we get like here's the chemicals involved and here's the molecular structure of a collapsium node and stuff like that. But even there, it's not all that you get because there are whole conversations that McCarthy perhaps thinks are going to disrupt the flow of the novel. Um, one conversation between Marlin and Bruno is entirely included in an appendix in Appendix A. Um, The glossary also is really interesting to me because they're vocabulary words, but even in the glossary, we learn which things historically were attributed to which person. Notably, the Arc Defend winds up being attributed to Bruno um, in the glossary. That's a huge point of contention in the novel where Marlin wants to have the credit for having made the Arc Defend, discovered the Arc Defend. The Arc Defend is is like a sort of time telescope that will let you see the end of time. And that's what both of them are working towards. And that's what the contention is. 
Yeah, so that attribution in the glossary is actually an, a pretty important revelation that's in the glossary. Um, and then Marlin, the antagonist's backstory, doesn't actually make its way into the novel proper, but it is Appendix D, where we find out about sort of his backstory. So I would like for y'all to indulge me for a moment. I would like to play two games. Um, oh, no. and oh, then, God. And then it's going to be an interactive game. So We're almost an hour into the recording. <laughs> we're starting a game. <laughs> we're starting Excellent. a game. Well, these games um, come from... Um, composition studies which is you know some of my background as an academic um we're gonna play two games they're called the doubting game and the believing game peter elbow who is a composition theorist um and for anybody for to whom his name means something i just want you to know this is only for those people to whom this means something and you know who i'm talking about when i say peter elbow he has sat in my car he got cheez it's on his butt from my kid had left those cheez it's there and he was super cool about it so peter elbow real swell guy anyway oh he my proposes <laughs> he proposes that when we read a text and he's particularly gearing this toward people who are maybe thinking about how to become critical readers right he proposes that we play two games when we read a text. We play the doubting game and we play the believing game. So when we play the doubting game, we ask questions about it. We say, hey, what's up with this? What's this bullshit? Why have you done this? This seems like a problem. And when we play the believing game, we give them credence and we like we, we take them in good faith and we think it through and we believe with them. So I'm going to play both the doubting and the believing game with this whole appendix situation. For the doubting game, I wonder, are these appendices crucial to the book or are they extras? Um, it's arguable to me about the science. I think in some ways it is sort of extra. Um, it's fraught when it comes to the narrative components. I would say the conversation between Bruno and Marlin um, that I mentioned in Appendix A and Appendix D, Marlin in particular, those are two fraught narrative components that are included in the appendices. Also, and y'all can tell me what you think about this. If you review Appendix C, I feel super confused from a point of view perspective. Appendix C reads to me as McCarthy in the year 2000 in our timeline, <laughs> whereas the other three appendices, appendices A, B, and D are from that future historian perspective. Yes, I concur. Yes. Richard Powers is like, I have books. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think C is out of character, if you will. Yeah, that's weird, yeah. right? Like <laughs> Appendix C yep. being out of character, but then I've got D on the end explaining the antagonist to me. What the fuck? What are you doing? I don't get like... <laughs> and I should confess that I do have a bit of a pet peeve about point of view changes. Like if you, I know we could have a go at Twilight on a lot of different notes, but that point of view <laughs> bullshit in that fourth book is unforgivable. This... This is far less. We're talking about Appendix C. But still, you've written a whole book from this perspective, including Appendix well, D, notably. Oh, from the perspective of this his future historian? Why is Appendix mm -hmm. C <laughs> in your voice? <laughs> yeah, like that to me is not, I don't, it does not work for me. Um, okay, on the point of view stuff, as I was reading, and we're, you know, we're fully in what Bruno is doing very deep in the story there's a point on there's a point at page 281 so about halfway through the book and then there's a point i think the one that really struck me was very late um 
when the author suddenly switches back to that, hey, you, reader, watch this thing. Mm-hmm. Like the opening pages. So let me read just the very opening for the listener. I'll start with the third paragraph. Walk with him. See his footpath cutting through the blossomy meadow. Feel the itch of pollens in your eyes and nose. Now pass through the midday forest, etc., etc. The opening is like this for a, several pages, and then then it falls away. And then later, there's a couple more bursts of that perspective, which really startled me. I was like, oh, right, shit, right. Who is this narrator? Does that point of view change, irk you, Lucy? Uh, no, I think it's consistent. Okay. I think it's fairly consistent. Like, I have half of my notes are, <laughs> who are we? Um, because it, it has it in a bunch uh-huh. of times, just like we uh-huh. or reader or whatever. I have no issue with it because I think it's consistent. Yeah. The only inconsistency is Appendix yep. C, and it does irk me. <laughs> because, mainly because it's Appendix C, and then and there's a D. D. <laughs> like, we that's... can play the believing game, but I've got an idea. Well, yeah, let's play the yes. believing game. And I will say this, it is genuinely clever to include the historical perspective as a component of the glossary. I think that unabatedly, mm-hmm. I think the glossary mm-hmm. is very clever. And I think those ideas about history that are included there is very clever. Um, I also think there's an argument to be made that by reading, um, including this way of reading the appendices, especially with the footnotes early on, McCarthy is arguing that all of the information in the appendices is actually pretty important, right? Like he's not, he, he's sort of saying, well, these are appended, but they're not extra, right? They are important, crucial components of the narrative. And this is a narrative structure that I have chosen for this text because I'm saying something about structure and what we call appendices and, and what all that means. And it's part in some ways of the meaning of this text. So, That's my believing game. So I guess I'm kind of written in my the asshole post on behalf of (laughs) Will McCarthy. And I'll invite you guys to (laughs) judge. Like, what do you think? Is this a clever narrative strategy? Or is it sort of a trick that doesn't really hold up? (laughs) A-I-T-A. Well, no. A-W-M-T-A. Is Am Am Will McCarthy an asshole? <laughs> okay, just ignore this. Carry on. <laughs> uh, so there is. I, I I'm going to uh, put in a footnote here that will uh, I maybe help explain this. There's an there's a a a an image that's introduced maybe in book three. It's introduced weirdly late in the in the book of the way that turbulence in. Uh, in various physical processes works <laughs> where like mm, if you yeah. look at smoke rising from a candle it'll rise in a single thread and then it'll bifurcate into two and then it'll split again and like make little swirls and so on and then it'll be very like kind of pretty and geometric and then at some point it just turns into chaos it turns into a an unstructured thing of smoke again so it starts off unstructured and singular then it splits and splits and splits and then it becomes this cloud again uh and this is a book where people are constantly like returning to the same situation like we book one Mm -hmm. the the sun's broken book two the sun's broken book three the sun's really broken uh people are (laughs) 
copying themselves, splitting themselves in two, and then reintegrating themselves together, making their memories match up. Um, there's a, a whole lot of gravity imagery, people being pulled towards each other, people being pushed away. Um, and the structure of this book, I think, is also exploring that idea of like how if you split something up too much, it just becomes chaos. And the the this well, it isn't relevant to the summary, so it kind of got glossed over. But the reason mm-hmm. why Bruno is trying to make the well, Bruno is trying to make true va- vacuum because he thinks it'll help him see the end of time. But the way that he makes true vacuum is he makes a box and he removes all the air, all the stuff from that box and ends up with a vacuum. And then he makes a box around that and uses the same technique to remove even more stuff out of it. And then he makes a box around that, or maybe it's inside, 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 inside. But he's recursively making a vacuum in order to somehow try and get a true vacuum, and he never quite makes it. Because, mm-hmm. obviously, it's a Zeno's Paradox thing, right? You're never going to get a perfect vacuum. You're never going right. to get to distill information down to its details. And so I think that, that like, part of the appendices are the idea of, like, things have been eliminated from this history things have been eliminated from this book and some of the things that have been eliminated are super important like one of the most intimate discussions between bruno and marlin happens in a uh an appendix uh heading muon contamination muons are short-lived bruno noted perhaps too gruffly time dilation has extended their lifespans and they have this whole discussion uh bruno says you see through the murk of my thoughts to marlin like bruno thinks marlin's super cool marlin's bruno's like marlin's a genius marlin is like this jackass is constantly showing me up and like this is maybe the final conversation we see those two men have before book three starts and the the solar system is breaking apart and that's something that this future historian decided just belongs in an appendix in a format screw of an appendix because like for the the first section of the appendix a is like let's talk about exactly how these things work there's no narrative no characters are doing anything there's no dialogue and then by the final section defeating inertia uh there's that's entirely it talks about bruno getting smoking some weed and getting a tray of bagels like it is completely dispensed with that idea of like scientific detachment god and damn then... i can't go for some weed and bagels <laughs> it sounds good <laughs> it sounds um, great but i think i think that what they're what this book is doing is sort of looking at how details get lost if you look from too great a distance and and like there is there's this intimacy that's that's often inaccessible and it's sort of reaching towards that vagueness and the fact that appendix d is marlin's backstory and like why is marlin so upset what like what was it like for marlin trying to date the queen and have because marlin was the first philanderer or philander philander marlin is the first philander uh and then bruno kind of comes sweeps in and replaces him and but marlin was also the queen's like tutor like Mm -hmm. when they Mm -hmm. i think they were both adults at that point no no i'm sorry she was eight um she was eight years old yeah 
Marlin yep. met her when she was eight and then left and then long, long, much, much later when they were both immortal, met again and he was selected. My Twilight reference was not entirely unprovoked by this book. There are lots of children who eventually marry people who knew them when they were children, which I guess is an inevitable side effect of people living forever. Yeah. yeah. But but it's also like there's this constant implication that Marlon's just weird, like in a bad way. <laughs> like there's all sorts of yeah. things about Marlon that are just off. He's just not. He, he just. I mean, he, he his house. The things the creepiest way. I'm going to talk about his house and later, and in, in, in ten forward. So I'm thinking about the the appendices. There's something that, and I don't know if this is the kind of reader that I can accidentally be sometimes, but if I'm reading a book and it has footnote references that have me flip back to the back of a book and I read some of them, and they are not interesting. They are just, you know, citations with no additional commentary. I'm gonna stop looking at them unless mm -hmm. I really think I'm gonna note that reference. So someone reading this sees those first two appendices and is like, I don't need my sci-fi this hard, and then stops checking the appendices. I think, I feel like that's a trick. I feel like this is a mm -hmm. thing that is that is being done by the author fairly or otherwise but i see myself in this <laughs> and that's why appendix c is non-fictional from mccarthy's perspective and d is about marlin because these things are hidden have shoved away mm -hmm. like intimacy and interiority are things that are most uh that are most quickly discarded in this sort of mm -hmm. historical long view and so like in in a way the f the whole plot is driven by the fact that marlin had this experience that no one else knew about no one else knew how grumpy how like toxically resentful marlin was and it was just tucked away in the back of the book because no one paid attention to it and it's in fact like that story is in terms of like all of the billions of people that died over the course of the story that backstory is like one of the most important events that's described in the book and it's just like often appendix d because the historian has no way of accessing this right the historian can't read marlin's mind so that's why you're are you're saying it's outside of the point of view of yes that historian yeah i think that we're stepping with each appendix we're stepping further and further away from this this like popular narrative historian like appendix A is like, these are unimportant things. B is like, I'll put a glossary. And C is entirely out of character. And then D is this omniscient narrator. Unlike the omniscient historian, it's this this eye of God reading, reading the mind of Marlin. Here's why I am unconvinced. And that is because we are we are directly told in the text the time when we don't know what was happening with Bruno because he made it so that history could not access what was happening with Bruno. Mm -hmm. It is not my understanding that what is told in Appendix D is inaccessible to history. I, I don't have that sense that this is not something that historians don't have any access to. I think that, I think there's the implication that this is assembled in part from Bruno's writings afterwards. And Marlon doesn't. Marlon pulls a, who's the Shakespearean villain? Is it Iago? Who's like, I'm not going to mm -hmm. say another thing. It is like Yaka. that's what Marlin pulls. Um, he he and Bruno have a a uh, 
one final night before Marlin's exiled um, for all of this. Well, I'll just, I sometimes, one of my metrics for art, for like evaluating art is how much I think about it <laughs> after the fact. Mm -hmm. So we'll see if this appendix thing continues to plague me um, because that might be a, that it, it, it is, maybe it's done something good. With the main topics covered, it's time for a quick lightning round of other interesting things we spotted. Okay, so I talked about sci-fi. This is also kind of just, this is almost a fantasy book. So it's clearly doing alchemy stuff. Like there's this, this genius locked away in this mystical, this strange place, this planet way too small, impossibly small, if not for his knowledge. And he's refining things. He's taking the fundamental building blocks of existence and linking them together. He's, he's, uh, clearing away the matter out of something this is alchemy like the mm -hmm. the idea of dissolution and amalgamation of like breaking stuff apart and putting it back together again of purifying things and then recorrupting them like he's an alchemist doing magic out on the edges of the solar system this whole <laughs> book is a is a big wizard battle it's two uh -huh. geniuses using their inexplicable powers to launch satellites at each other to fire beams that no one else can detect that all this this inexplicable stuff and it ends in a dungeon crawl like lissa joked mm -hmm. earlier but it really is like they go to mercury they latch on they, they because they don't have a door they have to melt through the ground in order to, to kind of create uh, uh an airlock for themselves and then like go into a room where uh Bruno has a magic staff. He has a staff that he can poke at things to make them die. And his, is it a sword that someone else, what does Chang yeah. have? Does Chang yeah, have she, a sword? He has a sword and maybe a gun. Maybe but also maybe a gun. gun. And they're like fighting their way through waves of robots. And then they like bust through the wall into the next room, which maybe has different robots. I forget what the next room, maybe it's traps, then robots. And then they break in and there's a big spider monster that they have mm -hmm. to fight with their magic staff and sword. And then they finally and their familiar go has the... to come help. Yes, yeah. Hugo comes. Good, good old Hugo, the, the robot who's trying very hard. The Sam Gam G. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, they finally confront the, the wizard and outwizard him. And, like, this is... It's a... It, like... I don't know what this book is doing. Like, this is yeah. my appendicitis for this. Like, why is this <laughs> book that clearly is playing with hard sci-fi? Why does it very clearly directly be like, these are two wizards and this is one wizard inv invading the dungeon of the other wizard. Like, what's, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know what this book is doing in that part. And, and like the ghosts earlier mentioned, like there's the scientific explanation for how like future archaeologists can reconstruct a scene based on all of this stuff. But like it really is a ghost like it really is just like mm -hmm. future archaeologists summon up the person's ghost using object reading on the stuff nearby in order to figure <laughs> out what happened. I, I will say to his credit, his McCarthy's credit. I did appreciate that that wizard battle did not. It was it was quick. Marlin was quickly oh, yeah. deposed once they got there, and I was very grateful. 
So it's yeah. basically just punch him in the face and hold him down. Like that's yeah. that's about yeah. all that happens. He went down. Great. Book three was good, but it felt long. Mm-hmm. It felt fuller of non, fuller of explanations, uh, which again, good explanations. But I was kind of like, wow, this like almost half of the book in terms of page count was yeah. book three. I think it's another um, example of the bifurcation where the f- mm. there's a first book that's size one, second book the same size, third book of the novel is the size of two of them put together that splitting and coming back together yeah um speaking to the alchemy part of this something that kept striking me is that you know we know that this that that bruno has robots will use them will automate Mm -hmm. things however there's quite a bit of time with his hands spent in special gloves which remind me Mm -hmm. of like i don't know what what they're called lucy i think you've you've thought of them more recently than me but the glove box that you operate in a closed environment still but air like, box yeah him manually manipulating these objects is such specifically a... i think he's using waldos he's using robotic hands that are controlled by yes his movements by his movements right it's a very hands-on process of this breaking apart and reassembling and trying not to mess it up and given how precise you would think this stuff has to be, we're dealing with like, if anything falls into one of these tiny black holes, it will get bigger and start to consume everything around it because it becomes bigger than the size of one proton, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is the kind of scale we're working with and he's doing this shit by hand uh, effectively. I think that feeds into that alchemy idea of it being Mm -hmm. old fashioned and rustic. (laughs) You know, um, I did find it really um, it was surprising when we saw the monstrous version of the playwright at the end of book two. But even mm-hmm. after that, it was surprising when we met the monstrous version <laughs> of the playwright in the mini boss in the dungeon crawl. And it is it, it did now that you mention it, like that idea of having these sort of literal monsters did kind of mm-hmm. feel like a weird element, you know. <laughs> in this book, especially since, and I think you, one of you noted this earlier, you didn't see a lot of people who are like changing their bodies hmm. in ways that maybe they would want to. <laughs> like, right. maybe I'd just like to have an extra pair of arms, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it does kind of point to sort of a monstrousness um, that is being uh, played with maybe here. Hmm. Speaking of non-human things, Lissa, you've got a fun topic here. Oh, speaking of familiars, okay. My baby Hugo. Let's talk about Hugo. <laughs> so, in Hugo did book, nothing wrong. Hugo did nothing wrong. Hugo's, Hugo's the baby. best. I was, I was very concerned. I the 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 angle of my concern changed over the course of these <laughs> of this novel. Uh, so, and we meet at the beginning of the second book. Um, we meet Hugo, who is a robot who has been detached from the house uh, and detached from the network of this, of this little planet of Bruno's planet. And Bruno did it very idly, very casually as an experiment, just sort of detached, wanted to see what happens if a robot isn't given direction because robots are sort of, um, 
they have a sense of purpose, which is to please humans, to please their humans or whatever. Uh, generally non-sexually? Uh, there's a there's a whole thing about that in the first book. Um, some people fuck robots. I think there's a line that's some like, people, some people fuck robots. It's a little weird. It, it's considered couth, or uncouth. There's a whole couth mm-hmm. and uncouth thing. But uh, Hugo, when freed, and I like just put quotes around that every time, uh, mm-hmm. can't even walk. Hugo is a pile on the ground uh, and gets tripped over. And it's talked about and, mewling, like making weird, yes, like, cries. Like a cat. Oh, the yeah. mewling or a baby. was the mewling. too much. Or this is baby. literally, he's literally playing God here, right? Like, it's, right. it's Bruno deciding to create life, kind of arbitrarily exactly. and capriciously. And it also, as as this progresses, we get these, you know, these little snippets. Uh, Hugo also takes his limbs off, removes his own mm-hmm. arms and legs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, I don't know, it, it's unclear if that's just exploration or if that's mutilation but the thing is bruno doesn't give a shit (laughs) like doesn't really care uh which i think is incredibly problematic uh so in this when when the queen comes in the beginning of book two she's like bruno what the fuck did you do man (laughs) oh yeah she definitely came (laughs) in book two (laughs) this it did she unconfirmed (laughs) the book is i think very clear that bruno's an excellent lover yeah i think it's very clear (laughs) oh do you think so Mm -hmm. i think the queen explicitly is like it never was the sex that was the problem it was this other thing oh yeah that's true that's true um so the queen says um robots have no volition declarant no desire to do anything but fulfill, nor do they possess intelligence unless you'd count raw intuition as such. You severed the link to its processor, its ability to grasp and assess the very needs it must fulfill? He nodded again, just so. She says, how unkind. You leave it helpless and confused in an environment beyond its comprehension. Bruno shrugged. Such is the nature of freedom, Highness. I've often said that life is nothing more than the choices thrust upon us when ability and incident collide. Which of us truly knows our course? Generally, we don't even know the landscape beneath our course. It's a terrible gift in some ways, but a great one as well. Hugo is more fortunate than some. Hugo, at this point, is just lying on the ground. (laughs) Uh, He returns later, and Hugo is walking. He returns later, and Hugo asks for a hug. There's just this progression, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And aside from this just tugging at my heartstrings, sci-fi, as we have read in The Wild Robot, etc., is very concerned with the ownership and and, uh, the, the contents of a robot's brain. (laughs) <laughs> what is what is in there by default? What is the intuition that a robot has or doesn't have? Um, you know, what is the constructed knowledge on top of that? And what does it mean for a robot to be free? Uh, mm-hmm. And or wild? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that question about what it means for Hugo to be free 
really, I mean, <laughs> to me was answered very problematically in book three mm-hmm. when Hugo shows up to save Bruno, you know, and ends yep. up b- fighting off all the bad robots, but being basically mutilated by them in that process. And it just, uh, you know, it, yeah, <laughs> it, it felt like, you know, what, what has what has Bruno done to help Hugo aside from this severing, you know, this offering of what he calls freedom, which maybe like I'm not like I, I do think there's a possibly interesting exploration there, but Bruno has generally seemed very um apathetic toward Hugo's struggles, but then is like, Oh, you know, showed up in the end old sport or something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> like Yeah. Um and I, I don't know. I mean, it actually reminded me and of very strongly, I don't know, y- y'all can tell me. I'll just say this and then y'all can tell me if we should cut it out. <laughs> um, it, what it reminded me of strongly was a scene in the Harry Potter series where Dobby, who is a house elf, who Harry Potter frees um, from slavery uh, in an mm-hmm. early book, is in the one of the last books, basically sacrifices himself and gets killed to save Harry. <sighs> right? Fun. Like, that is a very problematic... I feel like that's very problematic to go around freeing people and then they sacrifice themselves immediately for the people who freed them. I don't know. I don't know that that's as, um, I don't know that that kind of narrative says something great about freedom particularly, you know? I think this book is much more aware of the problem than the Harry Potter books are. Like, the Harry Potter books are like, everyone was right. House elves are meant to be slaves. Like that's textual in the, in the books mm-hmm. that Dobby is weird because he wants freedom. But in this book, like it's a Bruno says he's freeing the robot. He clearly is right. Like, like he's, he's doing an experiment with it that he's justifying to himself as, as freeing. And on a certain narrative level, Hugo and Bruno have the same arc in their lives like bruno existed in one space where he got to be a genius and then he kind of came to the court and either the queen or god or some combination of that freed him from his like material needs made him rich made him you know consort to the the queen of all things and he kind of was lost and self-destructive and not sure how to act at court and kind of first hid his identity and then like went into self-imposed exile and became this weird hairy prophet and as that like each of them comes to a point in their lives and their in their struggle where they choose to kind of give themselves up to the the very like system that freed them against their will like bruno chooses to kind of sacrifice a whole lot give up his home give up a lot of things in order to save the the human race and uh hugo gives like allows himself to uh, to be harmed in order to let bruno survive um and to save the human race ultimately and like there there's a parallel there that i think this book is like hey 
probably Bruno shouldn't have been brought to court, and Hugo probably shouldn't have been freed. But once that happened, they became the new kind of person that they were, and that new person also deserves to exist and deserves to decide what they want to be. Well... So the thing I want to mention uh, a little bit, really, I've, I've linked back to um, Gregory's fantasy uh, setting. I've titled this The Princess and the Feminist Catastrophe, uh, because it, 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 the way Tamara, who was a princess when she was a child and then becomes an unwilling queen, is portrayed in this book <laughs> was often problematic to me. Um, she's a princess. She's not interested in the science. She's beautiful and she's powerful, but she's not embroiled in the same kind of intellectual conversations that her suitors, Marlon and Bruno, are included in. Um, she's 100% a girl boss. 100% a girl yeah. boss. And yeah. it's like... Does, does her slot have to be feel, filled? Because when she's dead, this handmaiden who has never been mentioned of any, like, is suddenly an important character who's mentioned no, no, all the, the time. The handmaiden uh, that that is so important in book three is the one that puts Bruno and Marlin in the same outfit in book one. That's the same uh-huh. character. So she's the she's the BFF of the of the queen bitch who is trying to undermine the person she thinks is is not good enough for her friend. I would still like argue what? that she's sort of in that role of princess when Tamara is not around to be the princess. Mm-hmm. And her, you know, both of them are there to be saved and comforted. Um, and I do think, you know, especially when Alyssa was reading their summary about Tamara and how she sacrifices herself unnecessarily, I mean, even that's sort of problematic, right? Like, she doesn't even get to save people. She can only be saved. Um, she can only be that sort of passive um, role. Um, and then, you know, Bruno only kicking into gear in order to save her. Like... Yeah. You know, he he could have had, if he wanted, a relationship with her. Like, he could have not been on internet-free planet. <laughs> he could have been doing other things. But when it's a bad matter of saving her, that's really important. And then I also, I don't know, the whole Marlin as villain. And he really is, in Appendix D, like another reason for part of my disdain for it. It's like, oh, he really is motivated by resentment <laughs> and jealousy. <laughs> and it's, yeah, that's um, unfortunate. I, I do want to say in the book's partial credit, uh, good representation does not somehow balance out bad representation. But uh, there are two other women in this story that are i think Mm -hmm. real cool the best character in the book vivian who's this (laughs) she was an expert detective uh and then she but she didn't like having copies of her saved with the fax machine so so when she dies they had mental records but not physical records so they like had to take her as a child and put her adult brain in not in a not in a creepy anime way but like 
It's just like she's <laughs> kind of struggling to be like, look, I'm physically eight. Is that 11? how young she is? Eleven. I'm not actually. Um, I'm actually sure we get an eight. He guesses her age. Okay, but it's yeah. But she's like old, old enough to be able that you expect her to be able to speak like full, full English, but like just barely. Um, and she's really cool. And uh, Delia is also super cool. Uh, the the like the mechanic basically of the, of the crew. So I mean, uh, Bruno assembles a party for his for his dungeon crawl <laughs> he he it's bruno it's muddy who's the 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 barbarian i guess he flies off into the outer reach of the solar system to pick up delia and then he goes and uh vivian is on the is on the the ship where um where the queen died and like those two characters i think super cool yeah delia could be is is the classic sci-fi character who is happens to be a woman but is written just completely gender neutral i think vivian is is definitely written femme and also is very cool i agree with you i really like vivian i think vivian is a great character uh delia also manages to have to be saved by bruno i would note um Maybe Vivian, too. Everybody gets saved by Bruno. Um, so I guess it's not entirely about characters in some of my concerns about this book. It just kind of seems like the only, um, the only access that we get to a lot of the important parts of the book, like this whole quandary over science and how the Collapsium works... And, like, the important things about the book, it, it all just seems sort of only accessible to these sort of brilliant geniuses. There's there's mm-hmm. even an early part where, like, the in book one, the queen has an idea on how to save the planet. And both dudes are like, oh, ho, ho, we both know that won't work. Ha, ha, she's trying it anyway. But, yeah. Yep. So it just feels very, um, I don't know. It, it, it would probably have felt different if... Marlin was written film for example right mm-hmm. it just feels like is this can can this sort of either genius or villainy is this only the purview of masculinity like and and, and to can and, and to have like so much of femininity seem to be tied to um being an object um in some ways uh just I don't know. This book felt in those ways to me much older than it is. It felt much older to me than 2000 in those kind of gendered portrayals. And I think actually ties in with um, something that Gregory had said earlier too, like about how little exploration, like you don't see any pansexuality or bisexuality or queerness or gayness even, right? It's just very hetero and very (laughs) masculine um and it does feel to me very much older than 2000 i don't know it's it's looking at toxic masculinity 100 percent, right like it's examining masculinity being like what things are good what things are bad but not with any perspective other than that masculinity yeah and i I think it's trying to put a bow on it by everyone finding out at the end that this is the 
the historical narrative of the king of the solar system, right? Like we don't know what the bow on this on this package is until the very end when he's crowned and you're like, oh, all right, here's the tale. Um, and so I think that's the <laughs> that's the hat put on it of like, mm-hmm. well, of course it's, you know, this perspective because turns out this is actually the only person we're interested in and everything else revolves around him, which now that I say revolves around him, there is a scene in the first book when Marlin and Tamara and Bruno are together and Bruno describes it as the two of them revolving around Tamara as if she were a center. And, and this whole, this whole story is, is that for Bruno, I guess. There's but, a lot of um, gravity and orbit imagery oh, throughout. Yeah. I, I love when books explore various things symbolically as gravity culture as gravity or mm-hmm. a particular person having gravity in a, in a way that's interesting but that's neither here nor there if you i mean i think um copenhagen i think does it in an interesting way if you ever want to see i think um a book that kind of parallels characters with maybe how molecules behave like a nucleus and mm-hmm. electrons and that kind of thing i think copenhagen is, is which is about um heisenberg um, and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle um, is really successful with it. Oh, I do. Th- one thing that um, I've thought about a lot since I read it was that, um, and I believe we alluded to it once, that, you know, Marlin's been saving extra faxed copies of lots of people and torturing them, mm-hmm. but he can't successfully do that with Tamara. He doesn't like keeping her and torturing her. Um, and I think that's interesting. I do think there's something interesting there. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, is it does it point to a sort of romanticism, like that he genuinely loves her and 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 doesn't like that experience, you know? Um, or is it something else? I'm not sure. But I did think it was pretty evocative. He keeps and tortures himself. <laughs> he does, and is perfectly willing to do that, but not her. Yeah. Muddy says he is the worst to the copies of himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we could do we could probably do a whole section on sociopathy, perceptions <laughs> and concepts of sociopathy in this book too because mm-hmm. it's sure. it's wrestling with that. At the romance in this book is bizarre to me, quite frankly, as <laughs> I as someone who's so with you. <laughs> like I'm a person who reads romance books. I have particular tastes and subgenres of interest, but I read romance books. Uh and whenever I read romance stuff in traditional sci-fi, like not like, like not like an urban fantasy equivalent, but like sci-fi as sci-fi, I am always like, is this written like a romance book? Is this pulling literary romance, or is it an endeavoring to emulate real-world romance? Uh, and this shit is, I don't know what the fuck this is. This, this oh, is pulp sci-fi romance. Real... Yeah, this is neither of yeah. those. This is, this <laughs> this is, is the this is the, the genius space hero gets to bed the princess sort of stuff. This is yeah, Buck Rogers. Him finding out at the end that it was all about love all along is really just... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so cringe. Yeah, not my favorite. Not my favorite not, type of romance. Not the best. 
In addition to the deep stuff, we're also big utopian sci-fi fans, so let's head to 10 Forward to talk about stuff we geeked out about. I'll start with faxing, because Uh. I think it's... I think it's one of the most genuinely fascinating things about this book um, is the concept of faxing. And it is it is interesting to me that it only goes so far and no further, honestly. I mean, I would think there would be so much you could do with this concept um, that is unexplored. And maybe it becomes more explored in the sequels um, because there's so much going on with it. But I think as we were just talking about, um, Marlin's brand of torture and control having to do with those faxed copies, um, that's, that's interesting. You know, that's interesting villainy (laughs) that he's doing Uh there. Uh, I think early on, Bruno talks about how he doesn't like to make fax copies of himself because they'll just end up with some other project. (laughs) (laughs) that they become all focused on yeah he can't have someone help him because they'll get distracted because they'll want to work on their own stuff yeah yeah and we're only introduced to that idea in the second book first book doesn't introduce the idea of copies this way it's only when we meet delia that and marlin in the second story that we get this idea of well the ghost obviously but like copies and copies and copies yeah i have a note somewhere around the beginning of book two that's like so is this society just fixed cloning they uh just understand all the implications now and the answer is nope Nope. (laughs) turns out they don't definitely not and and that that yeah that scene with the the double murder when delia and marlin get murdered a whole bunch um, I was thinking then, like, how does one keep track of all the copies of oneself? I mean, the answer the book has is you do not. You do not have access <laughs> to your copies. So if you're making a whole bunch of copies, I mean, good luck. They might go off and do some other shit and you wouldn't even know about it. And apparently people can make copies and you not even know about it. Um, do, y'all, do y'all know about the whole sort of medical situation with faxing? and sort of HIPAA and this this whole thing. So before No, like in our world of our in our sort in of our faxing. actual Yeah. So in for like purposes of like HIPAA, there, there were certain ways you could only I mean I guess there are this still, is the but US only, health privacy law. Exactly. Uh, only certain ways you could transmit records. And before everything was electronic, one of those very commonly used was faxing. And if you have ever worked in a doctor's office or a hospital charting room or anything like that, and you look at that fax machine and you see the quantity of refuse left of things received and never picked up, things sent and the originals not taken, uh, just the sheer mess of a fax machine and the, you know, you could abscond like it's the whole thing it's a whole thing um where people were like digital records can't be safer and you're like safer than what (laughs) this this (laughs) um and so i thought about that as you know when it took me a while to realize that the interstitial between book one and book two where we see this we understand that ghosts are real and Mm -hmm. it says bruno was simultaneously diverted I, it took me probably 50 more pages. I kept coming back and going, 
simultaneously diverted. Like, what does that mean? And then before I finally tied together kind of what was happening there. Um, but I, I worked in a doctor's charting room at a major hospital here in Charlotte for years. And that image of that fax machine and the co copier fax machine is burned in my image, in my head of just what a fucking mess it was. And, you know, the degree of security required to get access to that fax machine. Uh, so the, the fact that faxing, I kept wondering, were there going to be more layers pulled? Like mm -hmm. finding out that they were destroying people and transferring information uh, was kind of one reveal that wasn't immediately given. There's this sort of mess that keeps unfurling. For folks that haven't read the book, the way that like faxing in the book looks and feels is that like there are these black walls that you walk into and as you walk into it, you're disassembled and then you feel yourself just walking out on the other side. But in the meantime, a signal has been sent at light speed, so kind of slow on solar system terms, from one to the other. And there, the cop, the when you leave, most people save a copy, a backup copy, every time they walk through, so that that can be restored if something happens to you on the other side. But to mm -hmm. you, as a continuous mind, you feel as if you've just stepped through a stargate to the other side. Except without the <laughs> cutscene that happens. I do think it's an incredibly um it's an incredibly well chosen name to call it faxing, because I think it mm -hmm. evokes yep. all the right things and the the technology of it and, you know, it's not so old that it's like you don't have to look up <laughs> I don't know, like how um, operator boards or something used to work. Like, I think it's just is really apt, really appropriate. Anyway, that's super cool. And it's yeah. so mundane to yeah, the characters. Right. They're like, yeah, just fax yourself. Oh, you're feeling sick. You want to hop into the fax machine? And it's they're saying, oh, you're drunk. Do you want to have your body destroyed and recreated in order to stop you from being drunk? Like, yep. it's weird. Oh, another thing that maybe uh, folks might not know if they weren't around in 2000 <laughs> and have like full experience with fax machines is that you lose quality when you fax mm -hmm. things because the, the data transmission rate is very low. So if you have, it's like scanning a picture at a low, you know, a low resolution, you, you just lose stuff. And so you've seen copies of copies of copies of copies. Um, when they started talking about that Royal, there's a, an institute that keeps the backups Mm -hmm. And they, uh, and which is what keeps failing when people are, you know, when uh, Vivian couldn't be restored, they just, they're still looking for her backup. <laughs> um, this, and ultimately all their hard drives crash. But anyway, um, that also sort of fits into the facts concept. Um, and one thing just to tie this whole facts thing into the broader technology, um, I mentioned in the summary that the ring uh, collapsitor, this solar mm -hmm. ring that's being made, um, I think I might have framed it as information or, or communication being faster, but that information is faxing people. Um, mm -hmm. That is one of the primary things that they want that data bandwidth for. So uh, that's why it's a huge deal uh, to this to these folks, even if, like, I think we might think, oh, you're going to make money on it, but it's just data going faster. 
For another kind of duplication, the thing that I geeked about was rivals. Uh, I like the uh, character dynamic of rivals in genre fiction. Uh, And like I said, as soon as Bruno and Marlin showed up, I shipped them. I was like, oh, I want these two to stop fighting over this queen and stop worrying about which one's better than the other and just like hang out and be bros or fuck or you know both you know whichever however works best for them that's what i wanted um and like that obviously didn't happen because marlin's terrible and bruno's not terrible terrible. not great (laughs) um far far better than marlin but sure the 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 dynamic of rivals the sort of formula of rivals is they must be both similar and very contrasting right you want two people who kind of are in a similar circumstance who are competing with each other and they have this shared experience of the thing they're competing over and then very different backgrounds and different approaches to it and it's the the ways in which those things are similar and different that makes their relationship interesting and this is you know this is the the you know the anime protagonist and his grumpy rival um this is like your uh your horatio hornblower like uh two two captains of two ships at a meeting at sword point this sort of thing uh and this book I think does a really good job at setting up that rivalry uh, because the Bruno is sort of the intuitive comes up with ideas and doesn't know how to check them person or doesn't want to check them person. Marlin is the person who has worked out all the details repeatedly in this book. Bruno will suggest an idea or like throw out an estimate off the top of his head and Marlin will confirm that a week ago he did the math and that estimate is pretty much correct but marlin's able to give more detail on it and their similarity is maybe most dramatically uh shown i have a a a picture that i drew uh in the at the start of chapter nine i drew a picture because bruno bruno's home is i'm i'm showing it and it's a, a a stick figure representation of this Bruno's home is a tiny little little prince planet that he can like walk around in the course of 10 minutes. So he is a he's a he's a person whose house is on the outside of, this, of a little sphere. Marlin's house is this weird Greco-Roman Escheresque structure that's a sphere that Marlin lives on the inside of. Yep. And so Bruno lives on a sphere looking out into space and looking out at the world. And Marlin lives inside a sphere, always looking inward, looking at himself. And mm-hmm. that like that distinction, that duality where it's like they they both live, they're they're both of their homes are tiny spheres made just for them. <laughs> but Bruno's home is one where he's looking out and like looking out of the void of space and wondering what his place in, is is in it and wanting something. And then Marlin is living inside a cave that he is only concerned with his own stuff and looking at reflections of himself and 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 his own failures and, and insecurities and, and they both sacrifice those homes mm-hmm. um in order you know to pursue their ends that they think are important yeah marlin mm-hmm. fires his weapon at it 
to, I guess, uh, remove suspicion and also wipe out as many copies of, of Delia and the others as he can. In fact, I think, I think that's supposed to kill the Queen and Bruno, I think, because they only leave Marlin's home kind of coincidentally that like Bruno has a, has a sudden flash of insight and is like, we, we got to go check on a thing. And that's how they avoid getting killed, I think. I think they leave because they get the call about the murders. And the murders don't all happen simultaneously. The murders I are think supposed the first... to happen simultaneously, but don't. Yep. Yeah. Right. So the first double murder happens. And I was having trouble tracing which Delia died because mm-hmm. Delia was also with the house. Yeah, the whole thing. Um, but... Yeah, there's that first set, and then while they're there, another <laughs> Chang runs up, I think, and is like, hey, <laughs> more murders. <laughs> yeah. I love that Chang, Chang Xiao is his full name. Chang Xiao, um, yeah. I love that Chang is totally cool with copying himself. Like, most other people are like, it's a little weird to have copies. You know, Dealey is like, yeah, I've got a copy of myself on every station, but they don't tend to work together. Chang will just like, be like, hey, Chang, hey, Chang. And just like be work with himself in a way that none of the other characters seem to want to. Um, yeah. But but yeah, uh, Marlon and Bruno are these weird counterparts, and and one of the cool things about rivals in this sort of fiction is that often your rival is the only person who really understands you. Like there are these two geniuses who are so different, and yet like. No one else in the human race can understand what it's like to be this groundbreaking scientist who's fabulously wealthy and has dated the queen. Like, only Marlon and Bruno can really understand each other in that way. And so there's, you mentioned earlier, there's this really touching scene at the end. Weird and touching, like strange and creepy and weird, but also emotionally effective. Where like... uh execution isn't a thing that they want to do for some reason but they have to find out some way to get rid of marlin they send him on a spaceship traveling relativistically off into the the cosmos so that he will get to see the end of time because his his life will be stretched across all of history and but but in a, in a way where he will never be able to reunite with humanity um and before that Marlon and Bruno have like they smoke weed and get drunk together and like talk about science all night and then the in the morning Marlon is sent off to to permanent exile. Did you have thoughts about that that scene, Lucy? I mean, I guess one of my big issues I have is that I don't like Marlin at all. I don't mm-hmm. think he is relatable. I don't think he is a good guy. I don't think there's... And I think Appendix D makes it even worse. So <laughs> to read about Bruno, like, yeah, let me have a party with this swell guy. I feel like, what? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it just... Like, I understand. I don't know. It kind of makes Bruno worse for me, too. Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Bruno's weirdly lonely he's a weirdly lonely character and the fact that he really wants one night with marlin even though it muddy survives right 
Muddy does not no. survive. Muddy oh. goes into sacrifices this. himself. That's the reason why he has to go and get the last couple of pieces of it that were starting to already fall into the sun. That's right. He goes off and sacrifices. And he's himself. like, I'm also. He said, I was meant to show you what a terrible coward you are, but now I'm going to also show you that you can be brave. It's, you know. Yeah. So Bruno has no one who understands him after Marlin leaves, and like to Bruno, apparently that's enough. To make him be convivial with Marlin for just a little bit of time. And you, you get that other duality between Bruno and Muddy, where they're the same person initially, but one is a copy of the other. And, mm-hmm. or, I mean, they're both copies, right? There is no real Bruno. Bruno was killed. If, if you think that there's such a thing as the a clone and a real copy, then that one died long long ago the very first time bruno was faxed and every they're all just clones and muddy is like bruno brought to his lowest but also somehow is bruno like like hugo was freed of his of his of his like purpose and and his guidance and his connection to society muddy was freed of all the things that are weighing bruno down we're like muddy doesn't care about looking abject because muddy thinks he is trash bruno cares about being perceived as trash and worries that he is trash muddy is like no i am trash i'm lower than dirt call me muddy um and so like there's there's that duality there too where muddy's actions reflect on bruno but bruno is not as brave as muddy is and maybe never will be because he cares too much about himself so i this is going to go back to marlin again so mm-hmm. sorry for looping back to marlin but i just recently reread um peter and wendy um about peter pan and there's a scene in the book where hook captain hook who is the villain of Peter and Wendy um, creeps into Peter's room to poison him. And, but in the paragraph before he puts the poison in Peter's cup or whatever, uh, Peter's just sleeping. It talks about how Hook, you know, he likes flowers. He thinks they're pretty and he enjoys music. He's great at playing the harpsichord. And it's kind of like, he's a real person, but also he's going to do this really heinous thing. And you're going to, you know, he, he's so set off by this scene of seeing Peter Pan sleeping innocently. That really triggers something in Captain Hook because he's, he's envious of Peter's like youth. He's envious that Peter has a mother figure in Wendy who cares for him. He, he wants Wendy, you know, um, but it is a really powerful moment because it also, you know, you, you see that Hook is not just this one dimensional villain, all that we see, you know, through Peter and Wendy's and maybe Tinkerbell, who's a bit of a brat in the book um, perspective, you know, and we just don't, I mean, I can't think of what we get like that from Marlin, you know, I want to know that he loved flowers, you know, I want to know yeah. that he, he read one of Winder's plays and was deeply moved, you know, by the denouement, you know, like something about him that could make him in any way, not like horrible <laughs> would be, would be welcome. He's joyless and awful. And yeah, that's about it. There is that there's a, when when Muddy and Bruno are first talking about what Marlin is up to, and the mass paperback, it's page 260, it's kind of deep into chapter 15, I think. 
Uh, Bruno felt a bomb burst of rage. Uh, what in God's name is driving this man? Why can't he just accept things as they are? I could kill him. He pretends to be merely jealous, a little bit bruised and snooty, a little bit nasty when crossed, and it's fine. People like him for it, or at least in spite of it. His wit and charm serve him well enough, and his genius. Why can't he just be that person? What's so savagely difficult, so brutally unfair about that? And this to me, in addition to highlighting some very questionable things about Bruno, um, <laughs> it also highlights the lack of, it does highlight the lack of depth of Marlon. Mm. Like, all he can list here is Marlon's a petty bitch. <laughs> mm -hmm. These are the yeah. these are the character traits. A, a petty bitch who can't even be a good petty bitch. Like, <laughs> I feel like it's really his own doing, right? If he has no connections in, in, in this galaxy outside of this terrible person, I mean, that's partly mm -hmm. on you, Bruno. Like, mm -hmm. you made you made that world for yourself. And I think part of the arc of the book is him learning, because, like, by the third book, the reason he restores his internet connection is because he's like, <laughs> I should have some fucking friends. Like, this yeah, is bad. Uh, yeah, this so book is, is constantly, Bruno this. constantly realizing that he's awful. Yeah. So I think on the flip side, one could look at that last party, the, the final night, and kind of say, like, this is Bruno accepting a human connection where he can have it and then mm -hmm. being able to let it go. Cause he could have put a stay of execution. He could have, he could have kept him around and talked to him and put a radio link in there. Like he could have done any number of things. Could have um, tortured a faxed copy of him for a while. Right. So I think it could be a sign of growth that he is laughing and singing and doing joyful things that like, the only real emoting we see from Bruno mm -hmm. is anger in book three. And then we see Muddy uh, and how, you know, Muddy's version of emoting. So, yeah. Okay. Mine is short. <laughs> it's, it's short because it's just a little thing. In each of the three books, there is a description of the light that comes off of the ring or some sort of complex um, collapsium structure. And it's called, I'm going to say, Sarenkov light, maybe Cherenkov light, depending on the origin mm -hmm. of the name. Um, and in each book, it is distinct. So in the first book, so it's the first time he goes to fix and he goes up to the mountain in Venus and, and sort of susses out uh, the problem with the with the ring twisting um it is once it's fixed it says that haunting Serenkov glow was gone super reflected back into the body of the ring collapsitor so that's book one in book two okay the bottom of page 145 it says on bruto's own slate marlin's tracings were echoed and quickly became solid detailed three-dimensional looking images the sun blazed and the ring collapsitor its thickness exaggerated by several orders of magnitude glittered around it like a like a two-thirds completed crown fully half the structure though showed not the soothing blue of hawking sarenkov radiation but a kind of dingy brown glow and then in the third book it is described as glowing blue as the ghosts of drowned sailors. Mm. 
and we, we get more ghost imagery, more haunting kinds of labels as we move through these books and have these different experiences. But I, I just like this recurring sense of like how Bruno is feeling about this thing he's interacting with. Because we see, I think, maybe beginning of book three, where he's starting to lose some of the joy of discovery. Maybe that's the end of book two, um, where he's wondering, which he later wonders about Marlin, like, what are you doing this for, my guy? Uh, and so these little bits of, of description of whether the, the, the glowing is soothing or scary or something else. And, and if folks don't know, Chernikov light is a real thing that exists in our world. Yes. You can look up videos of um, nuclear reactors and they will glow this weird, eerie blue that's the result of some atomic process. It is lovely imagery, and it's nice that you can see it sort of reflected through the three books. Well, at the end of each episode, we pick the next thing we're reading based on some connection from this episode. So, the Collapsium has humanity politically united in a society apparently without disease or death, with extensive use of teleportation for travel. Oh, shit. So next time, we'll be reading a story with a similar premise. Uh, this one's a little bit of an unconventional work. We're going to be reading SCP-6001, Avalon. Oh. <gasps> Fuck. I always want an excuse to read SCP. So yeah, this is part of the SCP collaborative writing project uh, at the SCP wiki. That's uh, secure, contain, and protect is one interpretation of that acronym uh and uh since it assumes sort of a certain amount of familiarity with that world there's a lot of cross references uh i'm going to prepare a short glossary uh, a real glossary uh not a, a cute glossary like this in this book <laughs> just a normal one um to help anyone who's hasn't read much of it including y'all too uh you don't have to read the story or the glossary to enjoy the episode or the you don't have to read the glossary to enjoy the story, but I think it'll it'll help inform some of this. Um, but I'll link to both the story, which is freely available and real short, um, and the glossary uh, in the show notes, so you can get those. And uh, it also has a very good cat in it. I don't think anyone's going to enjoy the episode if Lissa and I don't read. <laughs> yes, I, that that you was to the audience. Y'all too. I expect you to read the story and the glossary if you want it. Um, but, yes, professor. <laughs> but yeah, uh, you can check that out. So next time we'll be discussing SCP six thousand and one Avalon on Before the Future Came. You can find links and show notes at beforethefuture.space. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found the show. If you have any questions or comments, comment on our website or write us at onscreen at beforethefuture.space, which is real. At least it's a real email address. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm Gregory Avery Weir, and you can find me at ludusnovus.net or on cohost at cohost.org slash G-A-W. I'm Melissa Avery Weir, and I'm over at urson.net, and on Mastodon at melissa at urson.life. And I'm Lucy Arnold, and sometimes blog at intertextualities.com. 
Our music is Let's Pretend by Josh Woodward, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. Thank you for listening. I'm sure we'll all live happily ever after, surrounded by butterflies, children, and laughter. It's a fairy tale story, so let's just pretend. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. Happily ever after the end. There's a lizard in my office. Oh, cool. I was about to say, is anything, everything all right over there? It, It's uh, the color of the carpet. So I'm not, <laughs> fuck, I just lost fucking track of it. You should just uh, just cross your legs on your chair. It's fine. It's a lizard. It's it's fine. Anyway, okay. Ring of robots. <laughs>